0: I, uh, I feel like praying for a moment uh, Abba, thank you for your holy word And thank you, uh, thank you for your Ruach HaKodesh Your spirit of holiness That we've, we've sensed in our midst this morning Th- Thank you, Yeshua, for being our teacher We pray that you would open your word to us And that you would give us each something That will be meaningful to our hearts And applicable to our lives today And thank you, Father, for the Gospel. Thank you that Yeshua is the living Word who is living through us and doing your mitzvot through us and reaching out to the world through us. We praise you for that. Thank you for how you make the Word and the Torah come alive, Yeshua. Praise your name. Amen. Uh, Well, let's look at the Torah portion first. And uh, I think what we're going to do, so is, uh, I'm just, if you have questions or comments, if you want to write those down, we can cover those at the end or over on one, because we're kind of a, in an adjusted schedule today, if that's cool. And uh, and that'll be great. I would love to have like a long scripture-based discussion later, in midrash. So let's look at that. Um, in, in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, Moses talks about the hard times and the good times. And, uh, Being in the wilderness, to me, sounds like a tough time. Uh, It's a time when you're just barely getting by physically. Uh, It's a time when it's physically dry. Maybe sometimes that can symbolize spiritual dryness. In our lives, I I think if we were all to sit and review the the major seasons in our lives that we've gone through already, uh, whether it be in our own inner spiritual lives, in family relationships and in marriages, in our financial lives, I think we've all encountered wildernesses at times. So I think there's some lessons um, from this, this wilderness discussion that Moshe is having with Israel that can very much apply to us. And then the second half, he says, guys, you're going to get into the land, and it's going to be good. And you're going to have lots to eat, and you're going to be successful. And there are going to be some dangers that you're going to encounter at that juncture. So let's let's have a look at those. Uh, firstly, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Moses... It's nice, actually. He straight out says why Israel had to spend all those years in the wilderness. What was that all about? He says that it was a, it's a test to show what's in what was in their hearts. Wildernesses are to show what is in our hearts. Uh, is that because God doesn't know what's in our hearts? He sometime, somehow can't see our hearts unless He puts us through a, a crisis. And then He's like, oh, so that's what is really in... No, of course not. He he knows. I, I surmise that he puts us through crunch times, through crises and wilderness seasons, so that we can see what's in our hearts. Maybe it's a humbling time, so that we can walk out of the wilderness uh, with a greater in a greater degree of His grace, uh, knowing Him better. Uh, specifically, He points out that <clears throat> excuse me, the big question in wilderness times is: Will we do the mitzvot? Will we guard the commandments of God? Um, that's what they're about. Hard times, dry times, show us whether we really love God and, and respect His authority or not. And, and I can say that I've had times where I've had a crisis or I've had a spiritually dry time and my, my spiritual life just bottoms out. Right? I, I, I get mad or I just give up on doing what He said and or I get lazy or whatever. And at times like that, I'm like, okay Abba, you know, this is, I can say nice stuff but in the crisis, I'm, I'm seeing what's really in my heart. And it's nice, because that's not where it's in, it ends. That's where I can humble myself, where I can repent, where where His power can take over, where I can really see the gospel uh, begin to kick in uh, in my life. In uh, 8 verse 5, he also, he also compares the wilderness season to discipline. Kind of like how uh, a dad, he uses the analogy, would discipline a son. He says, um, Yahweh your God was disciplining you. So there's this element of discipline. And actually I really like this. In Hebrews 11 to 13, our reading for this week, uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, it draws on that concept also, quoting the Proverbs. And it says, um, if you're a real son or a real daughter, you're going to encounter discipline. Like if, if life is always easy and you have no problems and there's no discipline you should be severely concerned. You may be an illegitimate child. Maybe it's just a fake thing for you. So the discipline is good. He says he does that so we can share in his holiness. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, that's what it says. He also says later in this chapter, you you went through the wilderness, you went through the tests, and it was so he could do you good in the end. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, it basically says like, how we can respond when we go through tough times. Firstly, don't shrug it off. So don't take it lightly. It is serious. And secondly, don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. That's, that's our first response in, in crunch times. Uh, I was thinking this week of how the Master himself prayed for Simon Peter on, his, on, that, on the, the, the night of the last Seder. And he said, Shimon, Shimon, I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail you. That's actually really scary. Like if Yeshua himself was praying for Simon Peter, that means he was dangerously close to having his faith fail him. What does that look like when a person's faith fails them? Yikes! And so, that's, uh, that's something Yeshua prayed for Simon Peter. That's something we can be praying for each other. Uh, here, here, here's a passage along those lines also. In uh, Psalm 73, I'll, I'll read it to you. You can turn there if you want, but you don't, you don't have to because I'll read it to you. Psalm 73 verse 21. Uh, it's, I, some of these psalms are fascinating. They're like personal journal entries between the psalmist and uh, his God. And uh, Psalm, 70, Psalm 73 is written by Asaph, who is one of David's three uh, prophetic musicians and singers. And uh, in verse 20, they're very honest, gut-wrenchingly honest in some of these psalms. And in verse 21, he says, uh, When my heart was embittered, and I was pierced within, that I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. I I can relate to that, actually. Have any of you experienced that? Like, when you're really hurt, or when you've just gone through a bitter experience, and maybe you're feeling jaded, or cynical, or whatever, and it's like, what does he say? I was senseless and ignorant. Like, times like that, I just forget everything I've learned. I've forgotten that there's even a Bible or a God sometimes. And you just get you just get kind of like an animal. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, when I get hurt, like, something in me just wants to be like, you know, like, we have a fight to fight or something, and it's, and, and, it, and it's the animal side to me. It's the old nature. And, you know, at times like that, I have to open my heart to Yeshua and let Him apply the cross and let that die. But it's there. And it comes up in the crises and the wilderness seasons and the hard times. And uh, here's the kicker. At times like that, that's the times when we don't think to encourage ourselves. That's the times when we don't think, yes, I'm going through, he's disciplining me. That means I'm a true son or daughter. He's disciplining me so I can share in his holiness in the end. This is going to be good in the end. He's doing it. I mean, really, like generally thinking, we just, it, it's a hard time being your own, like, giving yourself a pep talk or a cheer, like being your own cheerleader at times like that. And I wonder if that's, that's when community really kicks in. That's when, that's when family really kicks in. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe you know, if if you have a friend or someone in our community or your spouse, when they're going through times like that, that's the time to go back to these chapters and to encourage each other. And I don't know. Sometimes when I'm in a hard time, I feel grumpy. I don't even want to be encouraged. It's like, leave me alone. I'm wallowing, and I do not, you know, just hang the do not disturb sign on your on your face and just say like, I'm wallowing right now. But you know, those are the times we need to hear it. There's a reason for the wilderness. And uh, you're going to make it through. And then in the second half of chapter 8, Moshe goes on to talk about when you come into the land, uh, when you have abundance of everything you need, when life is going great and you have more than enough to eat. And then in verse 11 he says, um, careful, careful you don't forget Yahweh your God. And then he actually he gives the definition of forgetting God. We would think of forgetting God like you don't think about Him in the course of a day. Or maybe in the course of a week. Or maybe you, uh, you become an evangelistic atheist or something like that. Um, maybe that's what we think of forgetting God. But according to the Torah, here in Deuteronomy 8.11, this is the definition of forgetting Yahweh your God. quote, By not keeping His commandments and His laws and His judgments, which I'm commanding you today. So do you know how terrifying that is? That means I can be going to church or synagogue, I can be be praying the prayers, I can say religious stuff, I can quote Bible verses, but if I'm not doing what he said, like if I don't have an inner commitment to keeping his mitzvot, man, I I have effectually forgotten him. And man, when I look at it like that, I forget God a lot actually. I, I really do. Um, anyway, he says, "So be careful when times are when, when things are going well. This is going to be the danger: to forget God, to slack off on your commitment to His Torah, to kind of get a little lax in you applying His mitzvot to your life." And then he goes on to list several other dangers. He goes on to list the danger of becoming proud. That's an easy one. Uh, let's say you you know let's say you really make it in life financially. Or you finally just get the, the dream home you've always wanted. Or you get that raise that, that you were really shooting for for years. Or, or whatever, whatever it would be that in your mind would be like an area of success. Or where you're really doing well. He says these are the dangers. You could forget God and, and slack off in your observance of His Torah. Um, you, it, it's possible to become proud. Um, it's possible to forget where you came from. He mentions forgetting who brought us out of Egypt. We, we've all come out of Egypt. We're all coming out of Egypt. We have, we have a past of addictions, of brokenness, of dysfunction, of, of ugly religiosity. I mean, you name it. We all have, we all have our baggage, our Egypts. And the danger is when we, when we come out of that and we come into what He has for us, to forget where we came from and to forget that He was the one who brought us there. Then um, finally, He also uh, lists the danger of supposing that I've, I did this all myself. I'm a self-made man. That's a real danger. I think, especially if you're, let's say, uh, successful corporately or in your financial life, it's very easy to say, you know, look how far I've brought myself. I worked really hard, and uh, this is this is what I have done. I am a, I'm a true self-made man. And uh, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in uh, having a strong work ethic, etc., uh, etc. Et but um, here here's uh, here's the quote. Here here's the here's the quote that Moses puts in the mouth of a. Uh, Uh, of uh, someone who may be in danger of this um, in verse 18 he says um, verse 17 sorry otherwise you might say in your heart so you might think along these lines my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth that's the danger and uh, the word there for power is koach everybody say koach Uh, Hebrew is cool there are a lot of Hebrew words for power or strength that must have been a pretty highly valued thing in Hebrew culture. Then there are a lot of words for for getting mad too. I, I think there are five of them in this parsha alone. I'm not going to list them all for you, but maybe maybe some year, if I'm really in a if I'm really mad, I'll like break down all the Hebrew words for mad to you, just to just uh, just for fun. But um anyway, this word here for uh, for power is koach, and it has the idea of energy. All right, like energy. And then the the word the concept of the strength of my hand that means your capabilities. Your hand is like your capabilities. So the, the danger is to say, you know, my energy and my capabilities have taken me this far in life. And uh, is, is it true that energy and capabilities do help a person to reach their goals? Of course it is. But in verse 18 it says, just remember that it is Yahweh who gave you that energy. He's the one who imparted a good work ethic to you. Why? Why? That he may confirm... Oh, sorry. A good work ethic to you. Why? To make wealth. It's he who is giving you energy to make wealth. That he may confirm his covenant. Which he swore to your fathers. As it is this day. So notice two things there. Firstly, it's, it's on the basis of the covenant relationship that he initiated and that he brought us into. And secondly, sometimes it even has to do with your forefathers, with your ancestors You may have had a godly great-grandfather or great-great-great-grandmother Or someone who, who lived a life of covenant devotion, who prayed And you know what? There may be blessings in your life that are a direct result of that And that, that's what this, this, this passage is saying so I, that's something that I really appreciate on a, on a practical level. Um, here's a very practical way that this can work out. When do we usually thank God for the meal in our culture? We thank Him in the wilderness, before we eat, when we're really hungry, right? That's, that's, our, that's the tradition. Now the interesting thing is, God never said to bless Him before the meal. That's actually a Jewish tradition. So if people have major problems with rabbinic Judaism they should take note that that is a practice of rabbinic Judaism it's also a practice that Yeshua did quite obviously it says that many times over in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 10 what it actually says is when you've eaten and are satisfied bless Yahweh your God for the good land he gave you so you know if you want to be technical what God actually said is to bless him after you've eaten to satisfaction Uh, In the Jewish world, you do both. You say a short bracha, a blessing before the meal. And then after the meal, you're full. And that's the time when you just want to sit back and, I don't know, veg or whatever. And that's the time when he says, remember to bless him. Remember to bless him for what he's given you. So uh, I I kind of look at that as a microcosmical picture of a greater principle in our spiritual lives. I don't know. have, Have any of you tried to get in that groove of blessing God after the meal? If you haven't grown up with it, it's really tough. It is really tough. It's, it's taken us several years and we're finally getting in the groove. And it's largely because of a game I like to play with Tierza. I, I read, a, there's a book called Bruchko out there about a Lutheran boy who uh, grew up in, I think it was in Minnesota, and he felt called to this tribe in the Amazon jungle that was the fiercest tribe. They had the highest percentage of people who would wander into that area, disappear and get killed. And so in his late teens... He just—he had an encounter with the Holy Spirit and he, he went to this tribe and he disappeared into the jungles and no one heard from him for a long time. And Bruchko is a fantastic book. I, I highly recommend it. But one of, the, one of the things this tribe would do is they would, like, they would just feast and they would gorge and then they would sit around and they would pat their big tummies. and They would, pat, they would feel each other's tummies and they would just enjoy being really full. And I thought that was kind of cute. I was like, what would that look like in our culture? That would be kind of funny. But I've I've been getting in the habit of after a meal, I just like, like often, you know, when you eat and you're really full, you'll be like, oh, I'm so full. You'll say something like that, right? And I've been thinking, okay, that's my verbal cue. That's my verbal cue to bless God and it's been helping a lot so lately I'll be like oh Tirza, I'm so full and then I'll feel her little tummy and of course like she's always gorged right and I'll let her feel my tummy and we'll feel each other's tummies to see if we're full and then we say wow you know Yahweh gave us enough food to eat let's, let's bless Yahweh and, the, and, the, and then we'll sing a, a short blessing um, have, have any of you heard the traditional Jewish blessing uh, called grace after meals Birkat hamazon it's pretty long it takes 5 to 10 minutes to pray and it's, it's very meaningful. It's a rich blessing. I highly recommend it if you haven't experienced it. You can find it like in a siddur, let's say if you have an art school siddur. Uh, First Fruits of Zion has an excellent short booklet on the concept of blessing God after meals and before meals. So you, you can check out that resource from them. I really like it. It comes with a CD too. So you can actually hear the Hebrew blessings. And learn to sing them. It's a lot funner to sing than just to say them. So you may want to check that out in an Arts scroll siddur or in that resource from uh, First Fruits of Zion. But uh, I, I highly recommend it. You'll notice here it's not actually a suggestion. It, it says, you know, if you've eaten enough to be satisfied, bless God. So you know, in the Jewish understanding that's actually one of the thir- 613 commandments. And so uh, I encourage you if you haven't experienced that to get in the groove of blessing God after the meal. It's, uh, it's very meaningful. Um, here's another connection between the parish and Hebrews Moshe in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 3 says that Elohim is a an Eish Ochla Charlotte when you were praying you used that word ash, which is the Hebrew word for fire Ochla literally means eating it's translated as consuming so Eish Ochla is a consuming fire it's a fire that Eats, eats up that which is around it. And in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, that verse is quoted from the Torah, saying, our God is a consuming fire. So there's something about a consuming fire that is a picture of Him. Uh, Moses goes on in chapter 9 to say, okay guys, you're, you're coming into the land, and don't think it's because you're so great, don't think it's because you're so good, don't think it's because you've been doing what's right. Au contraire. The reason you're coming into the land, number one, is because the nations there are so wicked and they need to be cleared out. And uh, number two, God is making good on an oath that He made to your forefathers several generations back. So again, it's that, it's that same concept. And uh, sometimes I need to remind myself of that too. You know, uh, we look at our spiritual journeys. For some of us, it's, it's been a huge and joyous discovery. Uh, to get into the Torah to begin to apply it to our lives and you know what it would be really easy for us to assume what the people of Israel could have assumed going into the land of Canaan it's like you know this is because of I, I deserve this you know uh, I, I've been I really deserve this I've been doing what's right and all of this and it's a good it's a good time to remember that he's doing it on the basis of his his grace in, in the context of the covenant um, here here's something that Jumped out at me because of Family Week and the message at Family Week about our God being passionate for Zion. It says in um, Deuteronomy chapter eleven, verse twelve, Deuteronomy eleven twelve, that the land of Israel is a land for which Yahweh your God cares. The eyes of Yahweh your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. So, did you hear that? There's a geographical legion, region, there's an area on the earth that Yahweh's always watching. His eyes are on that area. Like it, he gives it his full attention in a special way. And isn't it interesting that the media today is a reflection of that? Why does Israel and that little chunk in the Middle East get a disproportionate amount of attention in the media? That's interesting. Maybe there's something to that. It's because it's important. Um, This word here for cares is the same root for midrash. The verbal root there is to darash. Everybody say darash. It means like to search something out, to scrutinize it in a careful way. So it's saying God is constantly midrashing Israel, if I could say it that way. He's searching the land. He's scrutinizing that area. It's that important to Him. Uh, There's a parallel... uh, Concept in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3. I, I'd like to read that to you. It, it builds on that idea. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3, um, Shlomo, Solomon, has dedicated the temple. He prays, he prays a magnificent prayer in chapter 8. And uh, they offer like 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. And then in chapter 9, it says that Yahweh appears to Shlomo In a vision. And uh, this is what he says in verse 3. I've heard your prayer. And your supplication. Which you've made before me. I have consecrated this house. Which you have built. By putting my name there. Temporarily. Only for a specific dispensation. No. He said forever. He said I'm putting my name there forever. And my eyes. And my heart. Will be there. Perpetually. So did you hear that? There is a city on this earth Where God's heart is always there His heartbeat Is the city of Jerusalem His eyes are always there It receives a special attention So you know the fact that we gather On Shabbat And we stand with Israel The fact that we are a congregation That prays for the peace of Jerusalem It's going to be an area In which we can come to know the Father More closely Because that's his heartbeat That is his vision Um do any of you know what Tirza's middle name is? Tirza has two middle names, and one of them is Sophia. And uh, we named her that for a couple of reasons. But one of the reasons we named her that is in the in Hatikva, in the Israeli national anthem. One of the lines of it says "Ain Letzion Sophia." Ain uh, is an eye, your vision. Letzion is for Zion or towards Zion. And Sophia is the verb that means is watching. So, Ein Lation Sophia means like with an eye watching towards Zion. It's like having a, a vision for Zion. And uh, we named tears of that because... Sorry, tears. I don't know if she wanted me to share that. But... Um... Anyway, we, we named it that because like even though we're in the diaspora, we are passionate about the land of Israel. We have a vision for Zion. Uh, the reason we're here in Prince Albert is because we have a mission here. But half of me is still like half of me calls Israel home too, eh? So anyway, that's just a, that's something that I feel has really been coming alive in me recently. Yeah, um, in Deuteronomy chapter eleven verse eighteen. Uh, Moses says, uh, impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. And then he uses a couple of verbs. He says, uh, "He uses the verb for binding or tying. He says, bind or tie them as a sign on your hand and let them be as frontals. as the Hebrew word there is totifot uh, on your forehead. Uh, the Greek word for that is phylacteries. Let them be as phylacteries on your forehead. And uh, I think most of you are here, I think it was last year when I brought my set of Phylacteries, shall we call them, for a moment. And I, and I, did, a, I did a demo for you. I, I put the one on my arm that I, I put on every week when I study Torah and pray, and I put the other one on my head, and I, I, I shared with you some of the prayers that are prayed during that, uh, during that process. And I haven't brought them today, but... Um, I just wanted to wanted to underscore that because these are a couple these are a couple literal literal things It goes on in the next verse to say talk about the Torah basically all the time with your family and then in verse twenty write, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates and uh, some of you here have literally done that you have a you have a mezuzah you have the little box nailed to your doorpost that has the the little scrolls in it of the Torah. And uh, if you haven't done that, I, I would encourage you. This is another practical thing that Yeshua's family did, that the early believers did, and it's, it's meaningful. Um, there are a couple ways of doing that. You know, the Jewish people will take those little little scrolls and they'll put them in the box and nail it on the doorpost, as I mentioned. Um, some people literally write the words on their doorpost. Don't, don't maybe do that if you live in a rented, uh, rented residence. Uh, you may get in trouble for that one. Um, I, I, I've seen one family that printed it out. On, on like nice paper in a nice font, and then put it in a frame, and then they put that on the outside of their house at their door. It was really cool. You walk up to their door, and right in your face, it says "Hero Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one." It's like, well, we know who this family belongs to. to. We know who the God of this family is. So, you know, there are, there are creative ways, in addition to the traditional Jewish way, which I which I support, of uh, of applying this. <laughs> It's difficult to find in Saskatchewan. That's true. You may even have to order. If you want to get a mezuzah, you may have to order that. Yeah. I mean, you can order the scrolls that are handwritten by a scribe in Hebrew, or it might be a meaningful thing for you to write them out yourself. I know we did that, and it was meaningful writing out these passages and then nailing it to our doorpost and praying and dedicating our our household and our family life uh, to the God of Israel. It's a very powerful statement. Yeah, you can, you can order mezuzot from all over on the internet too. But those are, those are a couple of practical things that I, I feel like maybe we've even lost touch with in the body of Messiah, but that I think are very meaningful, that communicate very powerful messages to our children, to our neighbors, and they're radical. I mean, really, when you begin to take, take pages of the Bible and like, put them on your door, that's radical. When you begin to take little boxes with passages from the Bible and tie them on your forehead and on your arm, That is radical and it's cool it really is and uh, ladies you'll, you'll appreciate like this one of the Jewish sages I think it was I think it was the Rambam he didn't have any sons he only had daughters and his daughters were radical uh, for the God of Israel they actually would they would bind tefillin so there are some instances in Jewish history of women binding tefillin too um, it's kind of a cool cool thing I mean I don't know if you've seen like tefillin they look like something that Jewish bikers would wear like the thick black leather things you know and they look they look kind of scary Almost. Um, well, I, I, actually, I actually, in addition to my traditional tefillin that I use, I, I made myself just a little tiny set with just basic leather pouches and thinner straps. And I would use those when I was hiking or camping uh, or, or in scenarios where I didn't want to take an expensive pair of my tefillin. And uh, I gave those to Genevieve as a, as a betrothal gift. So sometimes she'll put them on occasionally, you know. And So there's room for that in Jewish tradition also. I just wanted to point that out to you just uh you might not want to strap on your big black leather to felon and go to the grocery store man that would that would be interesting you would definitely you might even might even start some conversations you can have some conversations i don't know um, i'll I'll share with you uh three uh three other things from this parsha i something I love is seeing the correlation between. The, the the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, and the writings of Yeshua's apostles, the, the New Testament, like they're they they're a unit. They interlock so closely, and uh, they explain each other also. So here here's here's something cool. Two places in this parasha, Moses is recounting to Israel their history. Specifically, he's pointing out to them all the times they rebelled, all of the mistakes they made, all their failures, just to help them stay humble as they go into the land. And uh, he uses this term when they're at Mount Sinai, and the God of Israel is revealing himself gloriously and bringing them into covenant. And speaking audibly, he called that day the day of the congregation or assembly. Uh, The Hebrew word for assembly or congregation is kahal, Everybody say kahal. kahal And the word for day is Yom Everybody say yom. Yom, yom So he uses the term Yom HaKahal The day of the assembly for, a, for that momentous occasion Now the interesting thing is that word in Greek is Ekklesia Which is translated in English as church usually Okay So I mean if you were to try and like get a fuller picture You could almost say like Moses called that day the church day The day of the church The day of the ecclesia, the ecclesia day. Um, Ecclesia is a Greek word. That's the Greek word. That's correct. Um, In Acts chapter seven, Stephen, before the Sanhedrin, refers to the people of Israel in the wilderness in that time frame as the ecclesia in the wilderness. And that word in, in Acts chapter 7 is translated as congregation, I think. But in all the rest of the New Testament, it's generally translated as church. I, I frankly feel like there's some inconsistency on the part of most translators with that. Um, the idea you get is, the church only showed up in the New Testament. The church is a New Testament phenomenon. That only came in the dispensation of the church or whatever. The only way way we can actually get that is when we read English translations. If you read in the Greek, let's say you read the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and the Greek New Testament, you realize the ecclesia, shall we say the church, is all the way in the beginning. It's all the way back in Genesis and Exodus. So I, I just kind of wonder... There's something about Israel at Mount Sinai receiving the Torah that's a picture of God's, God's true church. Of, um, of us as an ecclesia when we gather. It's, uh, hopefully that'll just kind of give us a feel for the coherency of scripture. And I, I generally don't use the term church uh, because it's, it's a very loaded word. It has a lot of baggage. Um, I'm not saying it's bad necessarily, but it's just it, it's hard to use the term church and communicate what I'm trying to say. Because in our culture, church is a building. A church is a building. You go to church, meaning you go to the building. You buy a church or you rent it. You know what I'm talking about, hey? Um, and in the Jewish world, you'll often say congregation or maybe synagogue sometimes. Um, so that's, that's generally what I use. But I'm using that to kind of help us get a feel for some of these, these broader, uh, broader concepts. Hevra is like a society. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And then Chavura is a related word that means like a, a group. Yeah. yeah, those are good yeah. words too. In the Testament, they were all Jews. Yeah, for the first like Thousands of for the first decade, that's right. The ecclesia was entirely Jewish. It was a Jewish ecclesia, and then of course that wasn't the ultimate plan. The plan was for it to be a multinational entity. That uh, yeah. Um, anyway, i, mean, I was going to launch into a big inclusionist uh, sp- spiel from Ephesians. Ephesians too. But there are two other things I want to point out here. Um, Okay, in 10 verse 16, this is is another interesting thing. Uh, Sometimes I tackle what would generally be called dispensationalist thought. Dispensationalist thought is is quite well entrenched in evangelicalism. And I have reservations with some of the concepts in in dispensationalism. Uh, Dispensationalism, for instance, would suggest that Uh, at Pentecost the church was born and now we're in the church age or whatever. So I'm just showing you for instance that the church was way back in the book of Exodus also. Um, Here's another example. Sometimes in dispensationalist thought there's the idea that um, in the Old Testament it uh, it was about physical stuff. You know, so God gave physical commandments for the people and then in the New Testament it's all spiritual now. So the physical stuff is kind of outdated or it isn't really as uh, as spiritual or whatever now. Uh, uh, So what would be an example? Maybe an example of that kind of thinking would be like, well, in the Old Testament God dealt with Israel and He gave them the physical sign of circumcision. But in the New Testament God deals with everybody and it's about the circumcision of the heart. That would be an example of the dichotomy that dispensationalism would introduce. And I suggest to you that that's a false idea. Actually, physical circumcision is something that was practiced in both the Old and New Testaments. Paul circumcised Timothy. And it was a false rumor going around that Paul was encouraging Jewish people to stop circumcising their children. You remember that from the book of Acts. Uh, And circumcision of the heart actually was being talked about way before Yeshua's generation. In this parasha, in Deuteronomy 10.16, Moses calls Israel to circumcise their hearts. Isn't that interesting? Circumcision of the heart is all the way back in the Torah. Now, can we have a real experience of the circumcision of the heart outside of the holy spirit outside of an encounter with yeshua i personally don't believe so god says very clearly in uh, in you know he 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 foretells the new covenant in the books of ezekiel and jeremiah and in those in those in those prophecies he says and i will circumcise your heart so we know that it is a new covenant experience to have your heart circumcised metaphorically speaking but at the same time it was being talked about already in the torah it's a torah ideal and of course the concept of having your heart circumcised, it's a, it's a metaphor for having a heart that is sensitive to God. The opposite would be having a heart that is insensitive to God. Um, and then finally, in Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 22, I, I really love this concept uh, he says, um, If you're careful to keep all this mitzvah, this commandment which I'm commanding you to do, to love Yahweh your God, to walk in all His ways, and hold fast to Him. Do you know what the, the verb there is for holding fast? It's the, the verb davak. Everybody say davak. And uh, it, it's, it's, the same, it's the same verb that's translated as cleaving when it talks about a man leaving his, his, his parents... And cleaving to his wife, being united to his wife, it's it's the verb to Um It has the idea of sticking together. In fact, it's the root of the modern Hebrew word for glue. All right, so it's kind of like husband and wives get glued together in in, in, uh, in the marriage bond. Um, the concept of a uh, I've heard um, Aaron Eby. I, I really like how he renders some words, and I've heard Aaron Eby um, render this word as bonding. So the idea of, of cleaving to God, of holding fast to Him or sticking to Him, it has the connotation of bonding with the Almighty. And I really like that. I like that all the way back in the first books of the Bible, He was already, he was already inviting people to come and bond to Him, to have like a very intimate relationship with Him, to have like a level of union with Him that's pictured in marital union. Like, wow! Wow! That is, that is the invitation that God extends to each one of us. And um, that, 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 whole, uh, that whole concept, of course, is carried on in the writings of Yeshua's emissaries. Paul, in talking about the, the negative effects of um, having union outside of a marital covenant with, say, a prostitute, he says, like, you're becoming one flesh with that person. You don't want to do that. And then he says, what you want, essentially, is... Like joining yourself to the Master. Having that kind of union with Yeshua on a spiritual level. That's First Corinthians chapter 6. So I, I really love that. I really love that it's, it's about a lot more than just doing stuff on a physical level or keeping commandments or checking off your righteous to-do list. It's about like encountering Him and, and bonding with Him in a deep way. And uh, I, I, I sincerely think that it's going to be different for each one of us. Okay. Like, I, I, there are certain things, like, okay, we talk to him, like, Greg, you'd mentioned having an inner dialogue. You know, of course we feel a real bonding with him when we have an inner dialogue with him. Um, but you know what, for, for some of us, it's going to be different. For some of us, like, when we really dance, that's when we feel like we're bonding with our Creator. For some of us, when we're singing our hearts out, or when we're praying in the Spirit, that's when we feel like we're really bonding with Him. I, I'm going to share something funny with you, like, I'm a little different I will be honest with you. I feel like I bond with Yeshua most closely often when I'm reading history, or when I'm reading like source texts. Let's say I'm like I'm reading like uh, I, I, I'm reading right now through the the quote Church Fathers from before the Nicene Council. And man, I love reading the Church Fathers. I love reading history because I really feel close to Yeshua. It's like I'm, I'm like going back in history with the Master and catching glimpses with Him of the past and, and how He taught His people and the, the, the struggles that His people had and how He was there for them and uh, kind of things like that. So, I mean, you know, it's going to be different for different people. For some of us, we're really going to bond with Him when, we, uh, when we're re- studying the Bible. Maybe you're doing a keyword study of a specific word. Or, or whatever, right? So I just I, I want us to kind of be creative and think in broader terms about bonding with Him. I mean, you know what? For some of us, maybe going to the shooting range and just shooting with God or going for a long bike ride, that can be, really, that can be real quality bonding time, eh? So let, let's think in really broad terms about bonding uh, with, with the Holy One. That, yeah, I, actually I could comment on that for a moment. Rashi, uh, you just pointed out, and I'm, I'm, I'm repeating just for a live streaming. Uh, Friends, Rashi, uh, there's that quote in, in, the, uh, in the Chumash, it says, the, the Jewish idea is, the way to bond with God is by bonding with Torah scholars. It's like, how can you cleave to the Holy One, blessed is He, who is a consuming fire? Wouldn't you burn up? He's an invisible spirit and you, are, uh, you live in a body, a physical body. This is, it's kind of a quandary, eh? And so in the Jewish tradition, the idea is, go and attach yourself to a Torah scholar. So go learn from a rabbi. And uh, I, have, I, I, I admit, I have a bit of a hesitancy with that. I think that can border on idolatry. However, it is also true that for me, let's say I'm listening to a preacher that, is really, that really preaches with messages from Yeshua and in the Holy Spirit. I, I, I feel like I can bond with Yeshua through that process. Um, also, we know who the ultimate Torah scholar is. We know who the greatest Jewish sage ever is, Yeshua, our Master. And it's very true that we can cleave to Him. And in the process, we can cleave to the God of whom it said that He's a consuming fire. So you know, I, I like that Jewish concept, and I like how we can apply that in a messianic Jewish parameter, and, uh, and make it about Yeshua. Uh, let's look at Hebrews chapters eleven to thirteen for about ten minutes here. Um, Hebrews eleven is the famous faith chapter I'll point three overarching themes out for you firstly it lists all of these people in the Hebrew Bible before Yeshua came and it says that they did all this stuff by faith you'll notice that it doesn't say by works so the concept of salvation by works before Yeshua and then salvation by faith after Yeshua which can be a dispensationalist idea is apparently false God's people have always been saved by faith and only through faith now you'll notice here that it says by faith so and so and then it usually lists an action. It was by faith that Noah conducted that construction project and built a huge boat. Uh, it was by faith that Abraham is going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Uh, the list goes on and on. So we'll notice there that true faith, a robust faith, will result in action. It will, it will be visible by our lifestyle. That's kind of a no-daw. right? Um, I'll give you the Hebrew word for faith It's emunah Everybody say emunah I really like that word Emunah um, It's from the verb to believe It's kind of funny In Hebrew we don't really have a verb for faith Like you could say I faithed it Or I'm faithing But we don't usually talk like that Right? But that's the idea In Hebrew faith is a verb Faith means believing it, uh, It's actually from the physical act Of, of driving a nail into something or a tent peg, so that it is secure, so that it is fastened, so that it doesn't move. It has the idea, like, um, okay, let's say you're framing up a house, and you're, you know, you're, you're driving the nails through the two by fours, and you're putting the frame together. Those nails are faithful; they're holding that house together. They're sturdy. So, like, when you, that's the idea of faith in Hebrew, it doesn't just mean giving mental assent to something temporarily. It's like, it's a long-term faithfulness. It's a, it has to do with a, a sturdiness, a, a, a stability, a dependability and reliability. All of those words in Hebrew um, have to ha, kind of have the idea of faith. Um, in Hebrews 11, verse 6, we read that your faith brings God pleasure. Isn't that cool? when we believe Him, that is like, that is a way that it means a lot to Him. It really ministers to Him when we believe Him. And specifically it says two things about that. Believe that God exists. So the fact that you believe that He exists. Or let's say you're going through a tough time and you say, God, I believe that You're there even though I don't feel it. That brings Him pleasure. And then secondly, when we come to Him and we believe that He, he responds to us when we, when we go after Him. In this, in this it says that he's a rewarder of those who seek him that brings him pleasure too so you know when you go after him and you believe that he's going to respond to you and then he's there that brings him pleasure that's something that we can uh, we can live out every day um, in 11.8 it says that our forefather in the faith Abraham he took a journey and he didn't know where he was going to end up he was faithing it that's a dynamic that will inevitably be in our lives at different times and in different ways. Uh, in, this, is, this is cool. This is about Abraham's wife. She was like a superstar. Um, she was one of the heroes of our faith. So ladies, I, I thought you'd appreciate this. It says, Sarah considered that God was faithful. I wonder if that isn't the root of faith. Where does faith come from? Maybe it, maybe it happens when we believe that God is faithful because when we see him as faithful when we believe that he's going to be there for us and he's going to be reliable then you can trust him then you can place your faith in him and believe him and then it goes on to say that in verse 11 Sarah received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life and then um, in verse 12 therefore there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that so did you get that? Sarah's faith produced Isaac for, for Abraham. So it's like Sarah's faith was, it was indispensable. It was vital. Sarah's faith was powerful. Sarah's faith directly in, like, affected her husband also. So, you know, for uh, those of you who are wives, man, your, your faith is vital for your husband. So, you know, when you get in the Word, when you believe God, your husband will appreciate that. That will affect him also. And I believe that applies on a broader level in the congregation. You know, when, when the sisters in the congregation have robust faith, when they believe God for things, man, stuff shakes. It's powerful. And uh, I, I appreciate that about, about your sisters in our, in our congregation. Um, in 11 verse 20, we read that Isaac blessed his two sons by faith. So a robust faith will result in us blessing the people around us. And you know what? It does take some faith to bless someone. It does. Um, His his blessing was somewhat prophetic. And we read in Romans chapter 12 that if your gifting is in the area of prophecy, prophesy in proportion to your faith. So those work together very closely. Um, I really like this. In 11 verse 32, he lists four heroes of faith. If you're reading... Through the book of Judges, you would not guess necessarily that these guys were shining examples of faith. He mentions Gideon and Barak. Firstly, Uh, Gideon and Barak had large; they had tendencies towards cowardice and chickening out and not believing God. If you read the story of Gideon, like man, it took a lot to get him to. Was it Gideon? I think the guy with the fleece. And he had, have, he had to have a couple signs before he would really go for it, right? And um, the, other, the other guy, I think it was um, Barak. Deborah comes to him and he's like, Barak, this is, what, this is what the God of Israel says to do. And he's like, I'm not going to go unless you come with me. And, 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 but you know what? But they're presented as, as, as men of faith. Um, he goes on to mention Jephthah and Samson. Jephthah and Samson had... Significant moments of sheer idiocy in their lives. They did really stupid things. Samson's life ended in suicide because of it. And yet they're still in the faith hall of fame. So, you know, be encouraged. If you have moments where you do stupid things, or you have, you have like embarrassing chapters in your past, or you've hurt people, or whatever, it's not over. He's still calling you to believe Him. And He still looks at those chapters in your life where you did have faith in Him. So I just, I appreciate that. That these guys are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Along with some of the more like pristine examples of faith or whatever. Okay, well like Samson, it could be an example of laying his life down for the Lord. But he did kill himself also in the process. Maybe that wasn't his, his primary goal to kill himself. I suppose it was to... Kill the Philistines, but he did say, "God let me die, die with the Philistines." So, we we'll, uh, we can we can we can hold comment on that. So we'll say maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I am cool with that for sure. But all that to say, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the probably wasn't the optimal way to die for Samson, and uh, yeah, it's kind of a sad story too. Um, Eleven verse thirty-five, um, it it mentions the concept of a better resurrection. Just thought I'd throw that out there for you for contemplation. In Hebrews 11.37, it mentions at least one person being sawed in two. Um, That's actually referencing Jewish tradition. Vicky kind of grimaced for that one. I grimaced for that one too. Um, Jewish tradition says that the prophet Isaiah was sawed into by Manasseh, who was a young king and was an absolute monster of a man in his, in his, in his, his teens when he was king. And um, he was born during those 15 years of extension of life that were given to Hezekiah. Anyway, that's what Jewish tradition says. It's interesting that the author quotes Jewish tradition, extra-biblical Jewish tradition, and it's interesting that he isn't afraid of it. So you know, there's a place to, to uh, factor in. <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, traditional Jewish perspective on things. Here, um, okay, I'll, I'll uh, leave you with two more thoughts here and skip a couple of things. In uh, 1317, um, he gives two action words for our relationship to congregational leadership. He gives the words obey and submit. And frankly, for a lot of us, those words. Have baggage connected with them. Uh, you know, if we've if we've been in congregations where leadership failed us, or where there's been spiritual abuse these words have been misused at times. The concept of obeying or submitting or whatever. But they are good words and they are good concepts. And uh, they're not things that we should discard just because some of us have had negative experiences. Uh, I was part of the house church movement for several years in my late teens. And man, those words are like dirty words in some circles. You know, it's like kind of an almost anarchistic anti-leadership uh, mentality where we're, we're scared of the concept of leadership. Sometimes that idea does pop up in in Messianic communities also. I just think it's important to note that this author is assuming that there's leadership in a congregation and he does say that this is the proper relationship. Um, Sometimes you'll have like, there's a crowd out there in the Messianic world that are kind of like hyper-idealistic, perfectionistic, it's never good enough crowd. And um, people like that will often be against all forms of leadership because well, your leader has to be perfect, and no one's perfect, so we just can't have leadership. But I, I think that's an unhealthy tendency, uh, personally. Um, if you don't have leadership in a congregation, you cannot obey the Bible. You cannot. You can't follow this injunction. It's just the way it is. So that is something to point out. He goes on to say, you know, make your leader's job a happy one. Give him joy. Don't give him grief if at all possible. Give them. The, give them that. Uh, that experience. And then for leaders, he says, guys, you are accountable for your community. Like, you are responsible for what happens. That's a very serious thing. And I, I believe that doesn't just apply to if someone has the name pastor or whatever. That applies to all of us to some degree because this, I'll use us as an example. This is our community. This is your community. And every one of us has a voice here. Every one of us has influence. Every one of us is a leader in certain areas and capacities. So, you know what? We can't just say, those people, they're doing stupid things and I don't like this. It's like, no, this is your community. You have ownership here. You're responsible for what happens here too. So that's, that's, the, other, that's the other side of the picture. Excellent. Let's all, for those of us taking notes, let's all write that down. To have a conversation about leadership and maybe having a broader understanding of it. Because you're right, often, um, often in the religious world, leadership is pigeonholed as, a, little, as a, a couple people that have a specific job description and maybe are salaried. But leadership is bigger than that. And uh, I would like to have that discussion. Genevieve, can you write that down for me and star it so that, so that we'll, uh, we'll have that, that discussion? That would be cool. Thank you. I need to write things down or they, they slip my mind. So, thank you. And uh, let's, 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 let's look at this As a, our, our last thought here <clears throat> um, The epistle to the Hebrews Hebrews is an ethnicity This is a letter that was written to the early Messianic Jews What that means is it actually wasn't written to us Explicitly Much of it applies to us We can learn a lot from it But the early Messianic Jewish community Was in a situation That's distinctly different Than our situation today so often, um, that's just something to remember. Even if someone is from a Gentile background, there are things in the, the epistle to the Hebrews that will not make sense, that don't actually immediately apply to them. doesn't mean you can't read it, or take what you can from it, but it's something that we can remember when we're interpreting the epistle to the Hebrews. And uh, here, here's a theme that keeps coming up. Now the early Messianic Jews, there was a certain point when they were shut out of the temple system, where they were no longer allowed to be part of temple worship. That was a crisis. Of course, uh, within a decade after that, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed with the temple along with it, and the whole sacrificial system was rendered defunct for a very long temporary period of time that we are still in. And uh, you can definitely hear the author in this letter Addressing some of the questions that come up in, Along with those, with, the, with those happenings This is a very prophetic letter It was very timely for them uh, He talks quite a few times about not belonging About looking for a city About having a country of our own About being strangers and exiles the, This is the language of the early Messianic Jewish community That was excluded from the broader body of Israel that was kicked out of the synagogue, that was not allowed to participate in the temple, uh, the temple rituals after a certain juncture. And uh, a lot of that, I think, applies to us today also. Um, actually, the man I was staying with in Dallas, Texas, he's, uh, he goes to a regular church. He says, you know, it has to be a church that, that stands with Israel and that prays for the peace of Jerusalem. And uh, he said, so we were just talking about my experience as a Messianic Jew. And he was very perceptive. He said, you know, is it kind of like you're in no man's land? I mean, you don't really just fit into your, your, you know, your, your regular Christian uh, box, but you don't really fit into the Jewish world either. It's almost like you're, some people would see you as a traitor to both worlds. And I just thought, wow, that's really true. I have experienced that. I'm sure some of you have experienced that too. And uh, you can just hear that in this letter this concept of, you know what, we don't totally belong anywhere, we're looking for a city that's still coming. We love, we love present Jerusalem, but somehow we don't totally fit in there. And he goes on to also talk about how we are the residents of the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, in the final chapters of Revelation, it talks about that Jerusalem in heaven, and it says it's coming down. You are not going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is coming down to you. And it is coming down to planet Earth. And that's where we're going to be. And I'm looking forward to that. But, you know, until then, you might not totally fit in You might not totally feel like you belong. You may not be allowed to make Aliyah. You may not be totally welcome at a traditional synagogue. The Messianic Jewish world may even give you, if you're a Messianic Gentile, quote, you may even not totally feel welcome there sometimes. You might not feel like, you know what? Join the club. Uh, Hebrews was written to people like that 2,000 years ago. It's still our experience. And it may not totally go away until Yeshua comes back and we all go home. So, Yeshua come. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.